0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics,
0: technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Hi! Oh, there we go.
1: Wow! This is so high-tech. I can hear everyone so well.
2: Isn't that unbelievable?
1: This is amazing. We're, We're in the big times now. Wow. I got
2: my driver's
1: license last week, just like we always.
2: Olivia Rodrigo is one of the biggest stars now in music, and her star rose incredibly quickly. In 2021, when she was just 17, she released a song called Driver's License that became the number one song on the planet. On the planet, her debut album Sour won three Grammys, including Best New Artist. And her second album, Guts, came out earlier this month. I caught up with her recently for a conversation about music, writing, social media, and fame. And so I talked to Gia Tolentino this morning, who was great and on our staff. She's amazing. And she wrote about you for for Vogue. And she said that you're kind of new to New York.
1: Yeah, I am. Um, I just got this apartment a few months ago. I'm still exploring, um, you know, but I, I love it. It's the greatest city ever. It, it's just so much inspiration constantly.
2: So you've left Los Angeles behind forever?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I'll I, L.A. will always be my first home, I think. But um, I, I love coming here as often as I can. It's the greatest.
2: Is, is New York more musically, I don't know, fertile for you? In some yeah. Way.
1: I actually think it is in, in a weird way. And I remember people always used to tell that to me, like songwriters that I knew. They're like, oh, you have to go to New York. It's so inspiring. And I would like roll my eyes. And I'm like, okay, sure. Like, I get it. I get it. <laughs> but um, we actually made half of um, this album Guts at uh, Electric Lady Studios in, in um, Greenwich Village.
2: So you, you're recording in the same room as Jimi Hendrix.
1: Yeah, exactly. All these incredible records were made in those rooms. And it's just, I don't know, you, you definitely like feel that that magic in the walls.
2: So let, let's start from the beginning a little bit. You grew up performing on Disney. You were on the show Bizarvark and on a High School Musical. And you already had a big TV career as a, as a kid, if you don't mind me saying. Did you also harbor right away that ambition, that desire, that passion to be a solo singer, to be a songwriter?
1: Completely. Um, I always loved songwriting. That was my first love, my first passion when I was so young. I I remember being like four years old or something and making up <laughs> all these crazy songs about like my four-year-old problems. Um, and uh, Do you remember any? Yeah. Oh my gosh. My mom has a video of me... Um, Singing about losing my parents in the supermarket, which is a very <laughs> traumatic experience when you're four years old. I can it imagine is. why I was so moved to write a song about it. Uh, but uh, I think when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, I was I was acting, but I I started like playing songs on piano and learning how to uh, write songs to chords, and that's when everything kind of took off. I fell in love with it, and you know that's just been my life ever since. I it's it's just my favorite part of the job. And
2: y- you seem to have. Even much younger than you are now, a real, um, a really wide sense of listening—that you yeah. a lot of things were going into your ears. What were they, and and why were you listening to what you were listening to?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I give my parents a lot of credit for for my music taste. Um, I, I my parents love. 90s alternative rock. I grew up listening to, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins and and Hole and The White Stripes. Um, and also um, from a very early age, I kind of fell in love with a lot of female singer-songwriters and I kind of realized that that was, you know, the kind of lineage that I wanted to follow. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember going to the thrift store with my mom when I was probably 13 years old and getting Tapestry by Carol King for the first time and just playing it to death.
0: I feel the earth.
1: I'd play it over and over and over and get all these Pat Benatar records and play them over and over and over and Joni Mitchell and, um, I don't know, I, I just remember something clicking in my head when I was really young and being like, wow, that's those, those are the girls that I want to emulate, you know?
2: Looking back, what was the first song that you wrote that you thought, now this is something, this isn't just kidding around, This this could bring me somewhere?
1: I mean, I wrote many songs when I was, you know, just putzing around in my living room um, Mm -hmm. when I was young. But I I actually remember writing Driver's License. I remember that exact feeling.
2: Which became a huge hit.
1: Which, yeah, I mean, I owe so much to that song. It, it, you know, skyrocketed my career in ways completely unimaginable to me at the time. but uh, I just remember writing that and feeling like I really expressed something and feeling like I felt like there was so, so much of myself in that song. And I, I, I remember feeling properly represented, and that's just a really beautiful feeling. I remember coming into the studio to show my producer the song and saying to him, like, verbatim, I think I just wrote my favorite song that I've ever written. And he was like, okay, sit down and play it. Well,
2: well tell, me, tell me about the experience of writing. And how did it work? Because it, it, what, what, one of the things that I love about it is it begins so directly— it, it just yeah. it sets the, the first it sets the age it sets the mood it sets the, the where you are right with the first line yeah how did, how did this happen?
1: It's very specific, yeah, I mean um it's I quite literally got my driver's license a few days before I wrote <laughs> the song, and i was a uh, i was you know loving my newfound freedom so i was driving around in my neighborhood um and listening to sad songs and crying and, and and thinking about this relationship and i just sat down at the piano and i'm a very emotional girl as i am now <laughs> and i just cried at the piano and and i wrote that song and um
2: what made you feel that sad in in the car when you just had your license it's you're i'm a jersey kid you're a california kid something about driving <laughs> i don't know what it is it unleashes something
1: it really does you know I thought about this a lot when I first got my driver's license. Um, I think driving is one of the only times you're like truly alone, especially as a teenager. Yeah. Um, when you're living at home with your parents, but um, I love it to this day. You know, you can do anything in the car. You can listen to whatever you want. You can literally scream your head off, and no one will <laughs> no one will hear you. You know, your neighbors won't be banging on the walls telling you to shut up. Um, so uh, I think you know it's that isolation that that brings out those feelings in you, maybe.
2: So you perform that on Saturday Night Live. How much? How much oh, yeah. after the release?
1: Oh my gosh. Really soon after. I mean, Saturday Night Live was one of my first performances. I think I, I released that song and I performed at The Brits in London and SNL. Those were my like first two performances in my like singer-songwriter career, which is pretty wild looking back.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, Olivia Rodrigo! <laughs>
2: So that's when I first heard about you. as I was watching Saturday Night Live, and I, I I looked at the tape again today, and I I asked myself, what was going through your mind when you were about to step on stage, and what you had to know was an audience of untold millions with this song. What are you shaking, or what, how are you feeling? What's what's in your head?
1: I was terrified. I'm not even going to put up a front like I was being brave. <laughs> I was so terrified. I remember being in the dressing room and the dressing room in SNL is like the coolest place ever. There's like all these pictures of all of your heroes on the wall, you know, that performed on the the same stage that you're performing on. And, um, I uh, I just, like, fully had a breakdown. I was so nervous and so scared. But, what do you um, mean
2: by a breakdown? Because you did I, make I it out just on like, stage. I didn't <laughs> make did make it out. Yeah.
1: I, I was crying. I, my producer was there, thankfully, who I, I love and trust so much. And I was just, like, crying to him. I'm like, I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. I'm so scared. He's like, you got it. I love you. You can do it. And, uh, you know, so his support meant a lot to me in that moment.
2: <laughs> the first album struck me as, well, as many things. But unless I'm wrong, and tell me I'm crazy if I am, that pandemic is something that, if if that if that album is to live on in history, and I think it will in, in, in pop music history, it, it's attached to the pandemic in some way, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I actually wrote most of it during the pandemic. Um, and I... Uh, I credit a lot of the songs to that isolation like we were talking about earlier I actually forced myself during the pandemic I made a challenge I had a challenge with myself where I told myself I'd write a song every day as long as the pandemic lasted. because you, you know we thought that the pandemic was going to be two weeks I'm like I can do it turned yeah. out to be like <laughs> you know forever 14 um, songs but, uh, yeah <laughs> but uh I did that for like maybe five or six months and um it really helped me hone in on my songwriting craft and, um, and um, you know, have discipline with my writing. And also I think that people maybe wanted to hear all those sad songs in the pandemic because I think we were all just as a collective facing emotions that maybe we hadn't processed because of our new, mm. you know, surroundings that where we couldn't distract ourselves. So yeah, I, I think that the pandemic definitely is a big part of that album.
2: I, I want to ask another question about Feeling. What does it feel like physically when you're on stage in front of a huge crowd and you're singing a ballad like Driver's License in front of an immense audience? A big yeah. live audience.
1: Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, I think that feeling will probably never get old. My favorite songs actually to sing are the really, like... Angry ones, um, especially on tour. I love like looking out in the audience. sometimes I'll see these girls and they're so young, and they're like seven or eight and they're like screaming these angry songs and like getting so like hyped up and you know they're so enraged and I, I just think that's the coolest thing ever. you know it's just that's not something you'd see on the street, but it's just so cool that people get to express all those emotions, through music.
2: If you had to think of one moment or one image from your last tour that's seared into your memory, into your brain, what might it be?
1: Glastonbury. Um, performing at Glastonbury was incredible.
2: This is the big um, big festival, outdoor festival in Britain.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it's actually the first uh, music festival I'd ever been to. Um, and I got to play it. It's just awesome. And it was the most people I ever, I ever played for. Um, How many people were and, there? Oh, I think it was like 60,000 or something like that.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, pretty, pretty crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, that was a really great moment of my career and uh um the supreme court overturned roe v wade the day before um i went on stage and um lily allen and i dedicated um fuck you to the supreme court that day (laughs) and uh, i just remember feeling so angry and Mm -hmm. and, you know being around so many of my friends who were so angry and didn't know you know what to do or what to say and 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 in that moment really feeling like music was such a outlet for us and looking out into the crowd and seeing everyone who, who felt the same way it was um I just, it, I think it, it just reminded me what the true purpose of, of music is, you know?
2: You mean as, a, as something of, of, of release and emotional force?
1: Yeah, of, of everything, of, 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 you know, of protest and of, of release and, and togetherness, you know, seeing an entire crowd sing that and, and share that emotion in that moment is just so transcendent, you know?
2: I'm talking with the singer and songwriter, Olivia Rodrigo. Her new album, Guts, came out this month and will continue in just a moment. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around.
0: WNYC Studios is supported by Lincoln Financial. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do and how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Hi, I'm Roz Chast from The New Yorker. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Life sustains itself by cell division. So does cancer. Breast cancer cells multiply faster because of CDK46 proteins. But what if we could block those proteins and stop runaway cell division? To that end, Dana Farber laid the foundation for CDK46 inhibitors, drugs that are increasing the survival rate for many advanced breast cancers. Dana Farber keeps finding new ways to outmaneuver cancer. Learn more at danafarberorg everywhere. Hi, I'm Adam Howard, a senior producer for the Radio Hour, and I have a quick favor to ask of you. This program has been nominated for a relatively new award in our industry, the Signal Award, which recognizes the best podcasts in the country. So if you enjoy this program, show your love by logging on to vote.signalaward.com. You'll have to click a few times to get to the news and politics category, and that's where you'll find us. The window to vote is closing, so do it now at vote.signalaward.com. Okay, we really appreciate it. Now, back to the show.
2: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. I'm talking today with Olivia Rodrigo, who turned 20 this year. She's already been one of the most prominent artists in pop music since the gigantic success of Driver's License in 2021. Rodrigo's new album is called Guts, a follow-up to Sour. And she told me that she sees herself working in the lineage of pop singer-songwriters like Carole King. We spoke the other day over Zoom. Let's talk about your new album. When you wrote your first album, Sour, you had so much that you wanted to express and, you know, and get off your chest and get off your mind as a young person. How is the Olivia Rodrigo of now different than the one who sat down to write Sour?
1: Oh, my gosh. Worlds different. But, you know, the craziest thing is I've changed so much just from the ages of 17 to 20. Like, and, and you know, in, in that time period, people are just, you know, you you grow. I feel like I grow 20, 25 years in three years, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, she's she's vastly different. But I remember definitely that, that fear of, of sitting down and trying to write the second album and thinking, oh, my God, I'm not a you know, 17-year-old girl going through her first heartbreak anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, that's such a universally relatable experience, you know. How am I going to make something that feels, you know, like people can get behind it? Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I what, guess it what, just... What,
2: what, what is the pressure? In other words, is the, is, it the, is it creative or is it that your life has gotten 200% weirder because of, uh, you know, all that comes with stardom and all, all the rest? What was the conversation like in your... Head.
1: Yeah, I think a mix of, of both. It's definitely like, you know how people always are like, oh, your only competition is your past self. And I, I was like, well, I don't know if that necessarily worked for me. I don't know how I could ever like, you know, follow up such crazy, you know, unexpected success. And um, so I put that pressure on myself for a long time. And uh, I remember, I actually, I um, Jack White is, is a big hero of mine. And I met him uh, for the first time maybe a year ago. And he wrote me this letter um, and it had like a few bullet points of like advice. And one of the pieces of advice was that your only job is to write music that you would like to hear on the radio. And Mm -hmm. I remember I was really struggling with, you know, all this pressure and, you know, are people on Twitter going to like, like what this song sounds like and all of this, you know, gunk in my head. And I remember reading that and, and, and it just really like igniting something in me. And, um, so I, I think that really helped.
2: So, so Jack White of the White Stripes writes you this kind of bullet point, you yeah. know, <laughs> advice yeah. column, and you yeah, were, were, and it were able to so take much. his advice.
1: Yeah, I think that keeping that in mind and, and reframing the songwriting process into just trying to write songs that you enjoy and songs that you like um, is just the only thing you can do also that being said making songs that you like is also terribly hard sometimes it's a lot easier said than done um that's it that that's a feat in and of itself but um yeah i don't know i think reframing that really really helped me i think on this album guts we um i, I think i really learned how to look at a song and and, and um you know look at songwriting as, as a sort of a craft and and not just this you know pouring my heart out at the piano like i was doing when i was 17 so um i think these songs definitely took longer to write um and uh i I think we just sat with them for a little longer
2: livia you took a poetry class at usc
1: yeah Uh uh-huh
2: when was that and and why did you do that
1: um that was last year i mean i uh was homeschooled my whole life there's a song on the album called ballad of a homeschooled girl it's about me (laughs) (laughs) it's dealing with the consequences of that but uh Yeah, I was homeschooled my whole life, and I always um, wanted to go to college, and I always was very curious, and um, I'm a very curious person. There's so much that I want to know in this world, Um, and uh, I really enjoyed taking that class, and I've always been super interested in poetry, and I've always been writing it for a long time, but um, yeah, it it was really informative and um, I am feel very grateful that I got that opportunity um, we actually turned one of the poems that I wrote uh, as an assignment in the poetry class into um, a song on the album called Lacey so uh, it was it was pretty productive I, I suppose Lacey, oh Lacey, it's like you're out to get me You poison every little thing that I do Lacey, oh Lacey, I just loathe you lately, and I despise my jealous eyes and how hard they fell for you.
2: Olivia, were there any poems that you read by poets or, or poets that you read that are helpful to you as a as a not just as a human being, but as a, as an artist?
1: Yeah, I um I mean Leonard Cohen, I I read lots of his poetry while I was making. Uh, guts. I think he's incredible. It's just that's just an endless well of inspiration. All of his writings and you know, drawings and I just uh, it's it's so inspiring. Um, yeah, I uh, I I wrote the poem Lacey inspired by um, the poem Daddy by Sylvia Plath too. So you know, lots of inspiration. Inspiration comes from everywhere.
2: <laughs> so you grab it out at what you can. I don't know if you watch Girls. Was, I haven't watched I, it yet. Everyone's
1: I, been recommending it to me though. I really need to.
2: So Lena Dunham is, you know, the story runner and she's also the star of the show and she's a kind of searching young woman. And and at a certain point she announces to her parents because she wants to be a writer. She says, I think I'm the voice, I'm not the voice of my generation, I think I might be getting this right, but the a voice of a generation. And now you're being branded, I hate to tell you, whether you like it or not, the voice of a generation, the voice of Generation Z, Gen Z. What do you make of all that?
1: Yeah, you know, I I tend to not think about it just cuz I think that's kind of a scary thought. Um I don't think of myself that way. Um I just try to be as much myself as I possibly can and try to make the best work I can, but I mean it's obviously super flattering when when people say that. Um but uh yeah, I don't know. I I'm, I I love my generation. I I'm proud to be a part of it. So But you know
2: you have you have thing. a song for example where you know we've all been living with social media for quite a long time. You grew it was already there when you you
1: yeah you, I ne- never didn't have it, which is a strange way to grow up yeah
2: and it, and it makes its presence known in your in your songs. Do you, do you also look at social media to see how people are perceiving you, which seems like a lot of burden?
1: Yeah, that's an understatement. It's a, <laughs> definitely a burden. Um, yeah, I, I think that I've gotten better at it um, the more that I've you know been on it um, it's just, you know, it's, it's a part of this job that I think is unnecessary evil. And there are some things on social media that are awesome. And I love connecting with people that I normally wouldn't have gotten the chance to. Um, but, uh, it it is weird. And and in my life, I I feel like I'm growing in in front of people, which is really strange. You know, I've been in front of people for a really long time. Um, and, uh, sometimes it can feel kind of stifling or claustrophobic to feel like you're always being seen um but uh i don't know i I feel like i have a good relationship with it these days i think i have a good um
2: well tell me about that burden
1: yeah i mean um i think for a long time i felt like i maybe couldn't make mistakes or i always felt this pressure to be a, a good role model and you know i grew up on these uh kids shows where you know that's being a being a good role model is very you know important as as it should be um and I, I think i always felt like i i couldn't be a normal kid and go out and, and do stupid things and make mistakes and, and learn which is you know at the end of the day making mistakes is the only way you do learn but i i feel like in in this album part in particular i feel like that was kind of me grappling with with those feelings and um talking about the mistakes that i i did end up making and being open and honest about them and i think that was kind of cathartic for me
2: like what Good example
1: i mean um there's a song "Making the Bed" that um, I really love, uh, and uh, the lyrics are, "Sometimes I feel like I don't want to be where I am, getting drunk at a club with my fair weather friends." That's like the chorus, <laughs> 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 um, and I was kind of nervous to say that. I'm, you know, I'm 20 years old, which is, you know, not, not of age yet, I guess. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I was I was nervous to put that one out, and I felt like it. it you know, I, I'm always so conscious of people. You know young kids listening to my music and and um you know f- people's parents listening to my music and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, I think that all of my um role models and all of my heroes are my heroes because they are unapologetically who they are and they express themselves without fear of you know uh, fear of of being criticized um so that's just what I try to tell myself. <laughs>
2: It, on this album, on, on Guts, you seem to be reaching back either, even further in history. The opening track, which is about all the impossible standards of <laughs> being a woman in America, starts out kind of Joni Mitchell, but then turns abruptly midway into a song that sounds like the Riot Girl scene.
0: Yeah. How do
2: you position your music in this longer tradition of rebellion?
1: Oh, it's a Great question. I love that question. I mean, I think like female rebellion music for lack of better word is like my favorite music ever. And, um, I've been obsessed with like the riot girl punk scene for a while. And I think that song was my stab at, at, um, trying to write a song like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel a lot of like kinship towards, towards women. And, um, you know, I I love writing songs about these, you know, female feelings of anger and, and resentment um, that maybe aren't so, uh, you know, so easily um, expressible in, in everyday life. H- how do you
2: look at your now re- reasonably distant past? A lot of times you'll you'll read about the early careers, particularly of women who were in TV as kids, mm-hmm. and they look back on it and they feel sad about it, exploited something, something Mm -hmm. maybe not terribly pleasant. Do you feel that you got through that decently treated and it was a healthy experience or there was downsides to it as well?
1: I do. I can certainly see how people wouldn't have that experience. I think it's a very strange way to grow up. Um, I feel really lucky that I was surrounded by wonderful people. My parents are so wonderful and so grounded and always looking out for me. And I'm, I just owe everything to them. I, I, I don't think that I would have that attitude towards it if it wasn't for them. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it is really strange. And you, you sacrifice a lot. Um, and I, I, you know, I didn't have a normal childhood in order to have that career. And I'm, I'm really grateful for everything that happened. But it's definitely um, it's, it's a give and take. What did you
2: miss most?
1: I I think I actually realized it this year how much I missed or I, I feel like I missed out on um, like going to high school and, and being around people my own age and how um, important that camaraderie um, felt like to me. You know, I, I grew up on sets where I was just around 45-year-old guys all the time. And so I think that I, I, I sort of feel like I, I had a, relatively lonely childhood, which is okay. I mean that's why I turned to writing songs and, and making music and all of that. But um yeah, that's that's definitely um one of the pitfalls. And but you fame know, is
2: and fame at the at the level that you're experiencing it now, which is pretty rare, is it lonely or is it something else?
1: Um I don't know what it is. Gosh, I I I I feel incredibly lucky to have great people around me, but it certainly is trickier you know navigating social life and relationships of any kind um you know it's definitely something that i have to put more thought into i guess but you know social life and relationships are hard regardless of what your career is so
2: now are we going to see you act again or is is music the rest of your career in a dominant way
1: i don't know i mean i'm open to whatever i love telling stories and you know if there's a story that's in a script someday that I would love to tell then I would be really honored to be able to do that. I don't really know though. I mean, I, I love music. I think music will always be my my biggest passion. R- writing songs is where I feel most like myself.
2: Olivia Rodrigo, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I hate to give the satisfaction asking how you're doing now How's the castle built of people you pretend to care about just what
2: you wanted. Olivia Rodrigo's new album is called Guts. At NewYorker.com, you can find a review of the album by staff writer Carrie Batten and an essay about dads listening to Olivia Rodrigo by Jay Caspian Kang. I'm David Remnick, and that's our program for today. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
1: The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Toon Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputibuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandro Dequet.
0: And thanks also to Alana Casanova-Burgess.
1: The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by
0: the Cherena Endowment Fund.